Sorting Facts by Susan Howe, Part 12. Because I know that time is always time, and place is always and only place. T.S. Eliot, Ash Wednesday. This is the epigraph to the English language version of Saint Soleil, released for distribution in the United States in 1982. Documentary and experimental films have a hard time being distributed in North America. <clears throat> Sadly, these films seem to reach only a cosmopolitan coterie of filmmakers, artists, photographers, and film scholars. It's the same situation with experimental poetry. Books and magazines of or about non-mainstream poetry are consigned chiefly to small press publication networks or cooperatives, and few bookstores order them. Recently, many independent bookstores are being forced to close when large chains move into their areas. I hear that in Canada, things are different. I thought first about writing something on documentaries about poets, because I remembered the recent PBS Voices and Vision series now subtitled for distribution, a television course on modern American poetry. The series consists of 13 one-hour video programs presenting the life and work of major American poets. I was curious why most of them seem so flat, though the word major was an alert. After watching them all again, this time taking notes, I couldn't think of anything to say. Mike Cartmel, a Canadian filmmaker, suggested I look at Saint Soleil. He described it as an autobiographical work about a French filmmaker with an assumed name. Saint Soleil wasn't about poetry. It was poetry, he said. I had just finished writing The Birthmark, Unsettling the Wilderness in American Literary History. Marker collided with birthmark. The assumed name struck home. Part 13. So, montage is conflict. Several years ago, I plucked this quotation from Eisenstein's The Cinematographic Principle and the Ideogram to use as, as an epigraph to an essay about Charles Olson's Call Me Ishmael, a study of Melville. Franklin D. Roosevelt's sudden death shocked Olson. Into completing the book, he had been unable to pull together for years. Now he started over, cutting, juxtaposing, and compressing his material in a radically new way. It was finished before the first A-bomb, First week that August, August 6, 1945, marked a point in time after which nothing could be the same. A few months later, Olson resigned his government positions, member of the Office of War Information in Washington and director of the Foreign Nationalities Division of the Democratic National Committee. Olson's critical study of Moby Dick marked his own delayed beginning as a poet. Shortcuts, mixed credits, news items, archival material, non-fictitious science, science fiction, 
pulp fiction, travel narratives, epigraphs, ballads, and passages from the Bible represent the delayed beginning of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. First, the effusive dedication to Hawthorne. Next, the etymology and extract sections. Aside from the dedication, and possibly even there, all of these scattered particles of fact and, of, and or fable meet in the word, event, whale. Sansoleil has a delayed beginning. Marker's film bears the device of its structure first. Credits, quotations, shots, film by himself and others are spliced and surrounded by with, with black leader. Even the title comes in three languages and colors. For a filmmaker, a camera is a screen within a screen. So is a word to a poet. Shots of a Japanese temple consecrated to cats begin and end the main body of Marker's sunless cycle. A couple has come to display an inscribed wooden slat in the cat cemetery in order to protect their missing cat, Tora. We see rows of enigmatic porcelain cats, each with, it, with, it, with one paw raised, as if to deliver some incommunicable communication. Rituals for recovering lost or dead animals occur throughout the movie. Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson, and Walt Whitman were all using montage before it was a word for a working method. Their writing practice, varied though it was, involved comparing and linking fragments or shots, selecting fragments for scenes, reducing multitudes, chapters or stanzas, and shots, lines and single words to correlate with one another, constantly interweaving traces of the past to overcome restrictions of temporal framing. The influence Whitman had on Vertov through Mayakovsky is well known. Is the Melville who wrote Taipei, Umu, Redburn, The Encantadas, and Benito Sereno a travel writer, a beachcomber, a reporter, or a poet? Moby Dick is a poetic documentary fiction on a grand scale. Often I think of Dickinson's handwritten manuscripts as drawings in motion, blueprints in motion, plans for the future, the theater of relativity of the screen. With an important difference, if Kino I signifies, among other things, the conquest of space, I am Kino I, I am a mechanical I, I, a machine, show you the world only as I can see it. Dickinson's pen eye aims at the conquest of mechanical reproduction. After reaching the age of consent, she refused to be photographed. 17th and 18th century American Puritan theologians and, and historians like Roger Williams, Anne Bradstreet and Cotton Mather were obsessed with anagrams. 17th century American Puritans were iconoclasts and animists at once. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson, T.S. Eliot, H.D., Marianne Moore, 
William Carlos Williams, Wallace Stevens, Charles Olson, and John Cage are among many North American writers who inherit this feeling for letters as colliding image objects and divine messages. Association, so far as the word stands for an effect, is between things thought of. It is things, not ideas, which are associated in the mind. We ought to talk of the association of objects, not the association of ideas. William James. If he, the author, make of his volume a mole whereon the waves of silence may break, it is well. Henry David Thoreau. Needing to translate words into thoughts, into things thought of. Needing to translate words into things thought of could be the mark of a North American poet. If marks of scattered hues in October sunsets geographically here can ever be translated into English. Walter Benjamin was also attracted to the idea that single letters in a word or name could be rearranged to cabalistically reveal a hidden purpose. My thinking relates to theology the way a blotter does to ink. It is soaked through with it. If one were to go by the blotter, though, nothing of what has been written would remain. It's sad to read that one of the reasons given for Benjamin's suicide in 1940 was his reluctance to emigrate to the United States. Here, he didn't expect to go anywhere. A mark is the face of a fact. A letter is naked matter breaking from form, from meaning. An anagram defies linear logic. Any letter of the alphabet may contain its particular indwelling spirit. A mark is a dynamic cut. Dynamic cutting is a highly stylized form of editing. Sequences get magpied together from optical surprises, invisible but omnipresent verbal flashes, flashes of facts. A documentary work is an attempt to recapture someone, something, somewhere, looking back. Looking back. Orpheus was the first known documentarist. Orpheus, or Lot's wife. Wavering between the prophet and the loss in this brief transit where the dreams cross. T.S. Eliot, Ash Wednesday. An epigraph is an afterthought. Usually it follows the title of a work. An epigraph is second sight, severed from its original position, replaced at a foreign margin. The magpied quotation now suggests a theme or acts as talisman. Magpies are pied, mostly black and white patches and white tail stripes, harbingers of ill omen they tend to be associated with thresholds and secret ministry. In Ireland, if we saw any, my mother taught us to count quickly.
One is for sorrow, two is for joy, three for a marriage, and four for a boy. The word magpie also refers to the black and white ceremonial dress of an Anglican bishop. In captivity, magpies imitate human speech. An early English dictionary describes these members of the Jay family as the cleverest, the most grotesque, the most musical of crows. In 1852, Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language bluntly defines magpie, a chattering bird of the crow tribe. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. Wallace Stevens, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. People say the magpie has a spot of blood of the devil on its tongue. People who like anagrams are usually attracted to epigraphs. 14. Le nomment de pas repart el quelque sot le trap grand proximet de temps. Racine, second preface to Basayette. Marker's epigraph to the original French version of Saint Soleil is lifted from Racine's second preface to Bazayet. One of the 17th century dramatist's least known works in English. Bazayet is a Turkish tragedy set in Isiraglio. The magpied lines are the second part of a point Racine was making. Un peu dire que le respect qu'on a pour le rio augmente à mesure qu'il augmente de nous, major à l'enquête We may say the respect that we harbor for heroes increases in proportion to their distance from us. What Marker didn't let in or cut out contains in itself a quotation without marks lifted by Racine from the annals of the Roman historian Tacitus. For Roland Barth, the essence of the Racinian eros is sight. In both La Jetie and Saint Soleil, sight is privileged. The image takes the place of the thing. Erotic scenes could be hallucinations. I saw her, she saw me. She knows that I see her. She drops me her glance, just an angle. When it is still possible to act as though it was not addressed to me. And at the end, the real glance straightforward that lasted a 24th of a second, the length of a film frame. In La Jetie and Saint Soleil, as in a play by Racine, glances are the equivalents of interviews. A look can be an embrace or a wound, even the gaze of statues. 15. Laertes, a document in madness, thoughts and remembrance fitted. The Capgras syndrome is rare. A patient believes that a person 
usually closely related to her, has been replaced by an exact double. When it was first described in 1923 by Capgras and Ribot Lachaud, they titled it L'Illusion de Soisy. In French, the term Soisy comes from Platus's Amphitryon. There, the god Mercury assumes the appearance of Sozi, Amphitryon's servant, thus becoming his double. Sansoleil is supposed to be the autobiographical account of a traveling filmmaker named Sander Krasna. The narrating voiceover is an anonymous woman, perhaps a film editor, a liaison officer, or a sister, remembering letters and camera footage mailed to her from faraway places by a documentarist who is or was a roving reporter. He could be an editor, collaborator, lover, teacher, student, brother, Sander Krasna, whatever. There is the suggestion that he, as she always calls him, the credit list at the end supplies the name Krasna, has gone away somewhere, possibly forever. She, the credits say Florence DeLay, says that, says what she says he wrote shows what she says he shot. We aren't sure who is real or imaginary. On the other hand, we understand him to be the cinematographer, Chris Marker. Marker's filmography, Dutta de Sabiri, 1957, Cuba C, 1961, Le Joli Mai, 1962, Le Bataille de Di Mion, 1970, beckons his audience in, in the direction of cinema verite. Chris Marker, Marx's cinematographer, always on the wing, not to be glimpsed except in flight, doesn't like to be photographed. Marker's practice of cutting, isolating, grafting, and synthesizing music, languages, machine noises, musical synthesizers, and quotations. Marlon Brandel's voice from, from Apocalypse Now depends on invisible verbal flashes, optical surprises, and split images. Ophelia's mad song evokes Gene Simmons in Olivier's Hamlet, although another woman's face is singing. Here, Marker introduces what looks like a solarized image. To solarize a shot, you re-expose it to light. So solarizing is double exposure. We see what is happening electronically on, uh, on a machine that separates the darks into lights. We see the process. This sequence recalls the editing sequence from Vertov's The Man with the Movie Camera, a classic nonfiction film. At the same time, it begins Krasna's meditation on and recollection of a pilgrimage he made to the sites in San Francisco where Hitchcock's Vertigo, a classic mystery film, was shot. The fictional nonfiction filmmaker inserts footage from Hitchcock's earlier fictional movie filmed during the 1950s on location in a city, San Francisco, once almost buried under ash by earthquake and fire. One sequence or mini narrative leads by indirection into another sequence. Meanwhile, the unseen narrator repairs or restores psychic reality 
and its relation to external reality. Though we are never really certain who has collected, edited, and marked each shot or shortcut. The American release version of Sans Soleil is narrated in English by Alexander Stewart. Languages bear particular canny or uncanny acoustical patterns, historical scars. At times, her narrative voiceover seems exaggerated in its accentlessness to the point where it impinges on the otherwise wonderfully varied polyphonic soundtrack. Recently, I was able to see a showing of Marker's Le Mestiri Quimico, 1965, also filmed in Tokyo. I now notice ways in which the memory of this earlier time in Japan crops up in Saint Soleil, but I see the resemblance and hear the echoes belatedly. Viewers of Vertigo, along with Scotty, James Stewart, don't know until three quarters of, of the way through the film that Judy, Kim Novak, was impersonating Madeline, Kim Novak. Could it be that the real Quimico is the cinema verite version? In the cinema verite version is a double for Helene Chatelaine, who may or may not be a professional actress. Even if she doesn't speak in the cinema, Roman Lajeti. Where is Quimico in the Tokyo Sansoleil? That's a later mystery. The Ginza Owl is here, moving his eyes as usual. The bullet train is here, right and left wing radicals are here, but Quimoco is not. The real Florence Delay is a French novelist, while Florence Delay could be here editing Krasna's movie. Gavin Elster edits Madeline's story through Judy in Vertigo. The absent cinematographer could be Delay's double, except we know the unseen woman is a figment of Marker's imagination. In 1965, Kwimoko is really a young Japanese woman, perhaps a professional actress now, who speaks fluent French. Her beautiful voiceover is one of the striking elements of the mystery that bears her name. Kim Novak's two voices as Madeline and Judy are essential double effects in Vertigo. Perhaps the spoken and named voices of Delay and Stewart co-appear by chance operation. My favorite sequence in Sans Soleil weaves in and around the Hitchcock movie. Here, the person who claims to have seen Vertigo 19 times shows by subterfuge how that film's spiral of time reoccurs in La Jetie. So for an English-speaking viewer of La Jetie, the Quimoco mystery and Sans Soleil, the ghostly presence of two women, their trace, is in Stewart's accentless narrative voice. Often, Saint Soleil seems to be largely about footage shot somewhere else. This is a film of quotations, outtakes, retakes, tape delays, failed military coups, dead pilots, and ghostly warriors. Everything is acted out on the borderline that divides interjection and incorporation. A double is a facsimile. In Saint Soleil's 
Sander Krasna. Is Sans Soleil Sander Krasna a reflected Gavin Elster? 16. Film Truth. Zika Vertov and Chris Marker are pseudonyms. Dennis Kaufman was born in 1896 in Bialystok, then a part of the Russian Empire, now a part of Poland. His father was a bookmaker and bibliophile. I can't find information on his mother. In 1915, when he was still a child, he moved with his family to Moscow. In 1917, he enrolled in the Psychoneurological Institute, special interest in human perception. The same year, he organized the laboratory of the Laboratory of Hearing, and experimented with sound recording. He also wrote a science fiction novel, Since Lost. In 1917, Kaufman abandoned his name at the threshold of his working life in film. Christian Francois Boucher Villeneuve was probably born in the Paris suburb of neuilly sur seine in 1921, possibly to a Russian mother and an American father. Other possibilities for a birthplace are Ulan Bator in Mongolia or Belleville, the Arab quarter of Paris. One bibliographic entry I found says his early life is shrouded in mystery, much of it perpetrated by the filmmaker himself. During World War II, he may have served as a resistance fighter during the occupation of France. Some accounts claim he also joined the, the United States Army as a parachutist. He says he didn't. After the war, Marker played music in bars until joining the staff of Esprit. He contributed poetry, political commentary, music criticism, short stories, and film essays to the influential Marxist-oriented Catholic journal. He also wrote a wartime aviation novel that has been compared to Saint-Exupéry's Vol de Nuit and Pilote de Guerre. Marker was founder, editor, and writer of the Planet series of travelogues for Editions de Sol, which blended impressionistic journalism and still photography. Marker turned to documentary filmmaking in the 1950s. These are only some facts. Somewhere else, I read his surname may simply be a reference to magic markers because they highlight or mark a text at the same time you can see through it. Sans Soleil could be a rejection of the documentary form. But what about Japan? Amekar Cabral and the historical context. A recent flyer for a marker retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York says he discarded his baptismal name to assume the pseudonym bestowed by his friend and co-worker, Alan René. In France, a filmmaker named Christian Francois Boucher Villeneuve would not be foreign. He would be French. In America, a person named Chris Marker could be from any place. The German Anschluss of Austria occurred in 1938. In 1938, Japanese and Soviet forces fought in the Far East. The Munich Conference divided up Czechoslovakia, and the Japanese announced a new order in East Asia. In 1938, Zika Vertov made an entry in his notebook. You cannot describe a house on fire until the actual event takes place. Perhaps there will be no fire. Either you'll have to deny the description as a fiction, 
or burn the house in accordance with the script. Then, however, it will no longer be a newsreel, but the ordinary acted film with sets and actors. In 1938, Boucher Villeneuve, then 17, probably hadn't even thought about changing his name. Nothing is accidental. Murder is a cipher in the word marker.